Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's going to be a fantastic summer of cricket with the number one test match team, India, in England for five tests and six one-dayers and the old enemy Australia here for a series of five one-day internationals in June. And the international season kicks off with two tests against last year's Champions Trophy winners, Pakistan. England's women will be busy too with the visits of South Africa and New Zealand for ODIs and T20s. And every England home test match, one-day international and T20, men and women, is live only on Sky Sports Cricket. That's the place to see if England can assemble a reliable batting order to counter Pakistan's dangerous seamen swing bowlers, to watch the old rivalry between England and Australia rekindled, and to monitor if India's much-vaunted batting line-up, headed by the irrepressible Virat Kohli, can finally come to terms with English conditions. It all makes up for a riveting mix of skills and styles. Sky Sports Cricket, where stories start. To find out more, go to skysports.com forward slash cricket. Hello and welcome to The Analyst Inside Cricket with me, Simon Hughes and Simon Mann. And the season's now well underway players and teams jockeying for position both in terms of the county championship and of course individually trying to catch the new selectors attention ed smith will be announcing the new england squad for the first test on tuesday and actually we're going to sort of talk about the art of selection today we're going to talk to someone who was a a test selector for a long time jeff miller and someone who thinks he probably could do the job now a a data specialist we've had on the, the show before I suppose I'd just like to firstly look at the the sort of history of selection, of England selection. And, you know, of course, in the 70s and before that, the 60s, it was really the domain of the MCC who picked England teams and sat around in the committee room at Lords and debated the various teams and 
debated the various players, and then it became individuals. I remember Mike Gatting and Graham Gooch being uh, selectors in the in the nineteen nineties. Before that, we had you know ridiculous stories like Alec Bedser calling up Mike Brearley to captain England in the nineteen eighty one Ashes, almost out of the blue after England went one down in the series, and having to reverse the charges in the phone box because you couldn't get the coins in. You know, farcical stories like that. And I, I also remember Chris Cowdery, who captained England against the West Indies. In 1988, he he tells probably an apocryphal story about suddenly getting a call from Peter May, who was chairman of selectors, and Peter May saying to him, "We'd like you to captain in the fourth test at Headingley." And Chris sort of rather self-deprecatingly saying, "Okay, Uncle Peter, I'm I'm happy to do that sort of thing," because I think he was his godfather or something. So you know, there's been all sorts of sort of strange manifestations of the art of selection, but now it's a slightly more sophisticated process. There's also Malcolm Devon's selection as well under Ted Deck. <laughs> which is always a, a beauty. By the way, thank you to everyone who's reviewed or rated this show. If you've enjoyed it, please tell someone you know who might like it as well. And if you want to rate this podcast, please do leave comments as well. And we'd like to invite you to be part of our Cricket Analyst Facebook page as well. And anyone can join. So, selection, first test squad being picked on Tuesday. Do you know who you think should be in and out? Have you made up your mind? I think I know who should be out. And certainly that's James Vince. And uh, I just don't know why he was persevered with for so long. And he hasn't really done anything in the county championship so far to, to warrant a further uh, time, further duration in the team. I think Ed Smith could almost be like Arsene Wenger now. Uh, because Ar- Arsene Wenger famously has all these screens everywhere where he's checking different leagues around the world, looking for players or watching the opposition for Arsenal's next game or whatever. You can do that now. I was I was at the Oval on Friday watching Ollie Pope batting superbly for Surrey. And by the way, he's one I would definitely have on my list to play some stage this summer because he just seems to have all the ingredients. But well, we I, saw him a few weeks ago, we did. didn't we, at the I mean, Oval? He's got better. And, you know, he's, he's, he's an exceptionally good player. He's got so many... Attributes uh, which we can we can talk about later, but but you know meanwhile I had an iPad on watching Middlesex, watching Nick Gubbins <laughs> struggling to get to his second hundred of the season and then getting out on ninety nine, having played really well, and then I had the radio on as well with my phone, so I could listen to other games on the BBC website. So you can actually cover oh, a lot of ground in one place, and I'd imagine that's what Ed Smith's been doing. So you've been making a play to be a selector, have you? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's fun. It's certainly fun to do it. I wouldn't like to have the responsibility. And, you know, I have great admiration for Ed to, to take the job on. Who else would I leave out? Well, at the moment, Mo and Ali can't justify being picked because, firstly, he hasn't played any cricket in, in the IPL, unfortunately. And secondly, he just looked as if he lost his mojo a little bit in the, in the winter. So those two players, for me, from the, the players that played in the Ashes, would be very vulnerable. Mm. What about Mark Stoneman at the top of the order? I, I don't particularly like him, but uh, I, I suppose he hasn't done anything terribly wrong. I mean, he hasn't made any runs either this summer. Well, isn't that something terribly wrong? Well, what, what I mean is that he hasn't uh, got naught you know, every time he's batted for England. He's got a few 20s and a couple of 50s and a high score of 60. He's looked OK. He's just looked vulnerable. Once he gets sort of into that 30s and 40s, he doesn't look as if he's able to really carry on and make those big scores. Maybe they should give him these first two tests and give somebody else 
in the county game the chance to really stake a claim. But of course, there isn't too much more county championship cricket happening after this round to for, for players like Keaton Jennings or Nick Gubbins or someone else to, to stake a claim. I think one of the points is that everyone out there, everyone listening to this, will have their idea about who should play for England in the first test against Pakistan, who their favourite players are, who they'd like to see selected for England. People saying, oh, Ben Folks should play, they should take the gloves off Bearstone at Ben Folks play, Porter should play, or Code should play, or Sam Northeast should play. Obviously much tougher for the person whose job it is actually just to nail it down, to go around the country looking at the players, talking and assessing who should play in the Test Match team. And that job fell for 13 years to Jeff Miller, first as selector and then as national selector. He was the man in charge, started in 2000 and stopped in 2013-14. Simon, you've been talking to him, and he explained to you how he operated. We used to um, talk to the captain, talk to the coach, find out when, what area and which direction they wanted to go. Uh, and then Grab would say, well, if we're going in this direction, uh, you go and watch so-and-so and talk to so-and-so. Cause the, the art of, of being a selector is, A, having the time to do it properly, B, having the knowledge of what is required to be a, an international cricketer, um, and I'm talking about a little bit further down the conveyor belt as well, and three, having the communication and the conversation skills to talk to people and get their opinions as well. So that's what I did. I, you know, I, I was delegated to go and watch certain players in the area where the captain and the coach felt there was a requirement. So it wasn't so much you deciding on a player and saying, right, I'll go and watch him. It was more you being told, well, you know, there's this sort of group of people we'd like you well, to look at. Yes, 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 but but also while you were going to do that, because you got the kind of knowledge of what an internationally international player was, or what was required to be an international player, you could watch a game, and you could have the get there early to talk to people, talk to um, managers, opposition coaches, senior players, or whatever, get their feel for it. That's where the communication skill came in. So you also saw as well as the the person that you felt you needed to be watching. You were watching others as well to see if there was potential there. And, and I suppose it was a bit of a lottery because, you know, it's not like going to watch a football match where the, the player you're watching is likely to be on the, the field for the whole match, mm-hmm. 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. You can turn up and watch a batsman, he gets a second baller and you're none the wiser. Well, you are, yes, you are. Can, you can be the wiser on that one because what you went to watch, went to watch a player who who you could see had got quality as an England player. but And it's not a very pleasant thing to say, but I'll say it. You also wanted to see these players fail as well, see how they handled, handle failure. So they could fail for a period of time. They might fail for two or three weeks, as all players do. And you needed to see how they handled that and what they did to work themselves back at the position where they were, they were quality players. So not only did you want to see them play well, and say, yes, this fella's got it. You wanted to see them have a struggle, have a battle, and see how they handle that. Is there a player that you, that you sort of almost jinxed by every time you turned up, he failed? No, not really. I did two kinds of journeys to a ground. I'd do what I used to call a fanfare journey, where they all knew that I was there, and uh, the, the, the body language was blatantly obvious that they knew I was there. And sometimes... 
I used to go with a, a different, as I called it, Wurzel Gummidge head on and, and, and stay out of the way if it was at all possible. Uh, so they didn't know I was there. And I, would, I was interested to see whether the, the, the body language was any different. And generally, it wasn't, to be fair. Uh, but I, I didn't always make it blatantly obvious um, because sometimes I, I didn't want them to know. But when I did want them to know, when I did go, it was to watch them play and have conversations with certain players and with managers to let them know where they stood in our kind of ladder. So so you definitely would would talk to players as well as watch oh, yeah. them to find out their their attitude and their approach and so on. Well, it's you know to be be an international we're talking cricket, but I'm saying sportsman, international, you've got to have the technical ability to be an international player. Well, let's tell cricket. You've got to have a technical ability to be an international cricketer, either with bat or ball or whatever. Then you've got to find out whether they've got the heart and the passion to really want to do it. And then when they've passed those two criteria, the third one was having the mental toughness to actually go and do it in the big league. And you could only make, you could only do like 90% of that because you were never quite sure the 10% of when they walked through that gate, how they would react to the big stage. They could pass all the others, all the other build-ups to it, but it was that last 10%. So what you needed to do is to watch them play, get a feel for how they play, talk to other people to find out whether they got the passion, determination to want to do it, and then face-to-face, eye-to-eye, talk to the person to find out whether you felt, and that, that's why you were given the position as a selector, to, to have the knowledge to find out whether they got the mental toughness to do it. And you only could find that out by conversation with them. Well, that's Jeff Miller. We're going to hear a bit more from him in just a moment. I just love the idea of having a different Wurzel Gummidge head on. Well, I I know exactly what he means. Some days he would present himself and some days he would go incognito and that feeling that you didn't know if he was in the ground, the England selector. Of course, I suppose if you know an England selector is on the ground, does that change the way you played? I mean, the the England selectors obviously came to watch other players when you were playing, Simon, rather than you. But but you (laughs) you must have thought, oh, there's an England selector in the building. I I remember, actually, a a great occasion in 1987 when Mike Gatting was, was England captain and Mickey Stewart was the manager and he came in. He used to make regular visits to the, the Middlesex dressing room, especially at Lords, and sit in and watch a, a bit of game and then chat to Gat, you know, in the intervals. And uh, he was there one morning when I was night watchman, actually, and I'd been not out the night before against Gloucestershire and play, facing Courtney Walsh and Sid Lawrence. Pretty severe attack. But I'd managed to survive the night and was getting ready for the following day and to bat, you know, and it was a lovely morning, beautiful pitch, and Mickey Stewart was there, sort of, oh, go on then, you know, show us what you can do, sort of thing. And Mike Gatting, who was next in, number three, he actually made me a cup of tea before I went out to bat and said, come on, Yoz, you know, just see off the, the new ball half an hour and then uh, then I can make hay afterwards. And I'd practised for sort of 40 minutes before the game all these bounces from Angus Fraser that I was going to get from Sid Lawrence and Courtney Walsh and was backing across and sort of ba- basically ducking before I'd uh, face any deliveries in the nets. And I did the same in the middle to the first ball of the morning uh, Sid Lawrence was famously quite a stiff morning bowler. You know, he just couldn't get going for a bit. And he bowled me the first ball with four slips, two short legs and a man at cover um, and a man at square leg. He bowled me one loopy half volley. And I was so far back on my stump, sort of almost overbalancing and ducking, expecting the bouncer. And I chipped a half volley straight to square leg. Had to walk off first ball of the morning. 
got back to the dressing room and Mickey Stewart just handed me my tea back, which was still warm, <laughs> and said, oh, dear, yours, and never mind. So that was the closest I ever got to impressing the, the, the chairman of selectors. But we always knew when they were there, you could see them standing up outside the committee dining room on the top deck of the pavilion. And definitely it affected how you played. And, and you know, one of the points that Jeff Miller makes is he was interested to see if players were different when they knew the selector was there compared to when they didn't know he was there. So the observational art of selection is a really precise one, and obviously he was very good at it. Yeah, and the other point as well, because you never quite know. You can make all these assessments of players, you can watch them, you can speak to players, you can speak to the players themselves, you can speak to their coaches, but you never quite know. Is that 10%. You never quite know until they actually walk out the gate and bat bowl field for England. It's amazing, isn't it? And uh, I mean, you look at someone like Mark Ramprakash, who, who I played with for many years, and when he came on the scene, we all said, this guy is, is going to be a world beater. You know, he, he made a man of the match performance in the NatWest final when he was age 17, practically straight out of school. He seemed to instinctively know how to play different situations, and, and, and he was outstanding. What happened at test level? He never got an average beyond 27. I don't know if Dan Weston, our statistical expert, who we're going to hear from later, would have predicted that with the stats that he produced in county cricket. But it's a problem, isn't it? Because, you know, you see these guys playing. Actually, that's why I was really impressed by Ollie Pope, because he was playing against Yorkshire. Yorkshire have a pretty strong seam attack. And I particularly watched a, a spell when he was in the 20s facing Tim Bresnan. And I thought it was a real education in a way. Bresnan's thinking, right, this is a young pup. I'm going to show him what you need to... I'm, not going, to, I'm going to give him nothing here. I'm going to absolutely hammer away at a good length and make him earn his runs. It was a, quite a, a juicy pitch to bowl on. And Pope managed to weather that little sort of spell, which was an excellent spell by Bresnan. He went past the edge a few times, got over that. And that was a good sign as someone who had the appetite to play a long innings. And, and he did play a long innings. Mm. The other thing about selection as well, you, know, you can go around yourself, you can have your own ideas, but it really helps to speak to as many people as possible and just get a sense of, of who is out there. And I suppose the, the aspect of it as a national selector is, is how much people sort of come to you and, and, and put players forward and, and, and what your response is to that. And okay, a bit more from Jeff Miller now. Do people pitch their own players? Yeah, but what, what, I, what I like to do, I like to go to games and I talked, all right, um, they, they've discussed these kind of 12 spotters, haven't they? In this new kind of area, it's the 12 spotters. Well, I had, I had 24, 30 spotters. You know, I talked to umpires, I talked to, I talked to managers, coaches, and some of the best, best ideas I got from coaches were not about their own players, about opposition players. You know, I talk to coaches and say, "What have you seen? Have you seen anything that's really struck you?" And the, you know, just to mention a few names, the Martin Moxons of this world or whatever would say, "Yeah, well, such and such looks as though he can play as well." I think you need to keep an eye on him. So that was a help in itself. You never asked me. Well, you wouldn't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> was there someone? Was there a player that you, not exactly plucked from obscurity, but? kind of uh, he wasn't necessarily everybody's choice and you went for that person and he did really well yes who's that then 
I'm not telling you. Oh, okay. That's, that's, that's loyalty to the player, and that's the private side of the conversations I had. There were three or four like that. Uh, three or four like that. And, and if that happens, how does that make you feel? Does that sort of make you feel quite pleased inside? Yeah, it makes me feel good. But it makes me feel good because I know that that is going to make us into a better side. And, I, you know, I, I opened my opening gambit, which you probably wasn't at it when I had the press. I want to make this team into number one in the world where, you know, with the quality that we've got at our disposal, we could well be that. And we did get to that. But it was done in a certain method because we'd got a very strong, we got a strong captain, we got a strong coach, and I got strong selectors as well with good viewpoints. So it was a very, very good working unit. And and I guess there would have been also uh, players who you thought, well, these this person's an absolute dead cert, and went to watch him and saw him do well, and then he just never never quite cut it. Yeah, well, sometimes, as I said to you earlier on, sometimes it looks like he's a dead cert. Uh, but that, that mental 10% when he walks through the gate, you can't judge that. You can't measure that because you're never, ever sure. And I'm sure he he wouldn't be sure either. He wouldn't, he, he'd, he'd like to feel that he knew how he was going to react in, on the big stage, but you never really knew until uh, the gate was open, walked through, then let's see. And I, I saw a couple of players who... who, who for want of a better word, behave differently at the middle in county cricket than what they did in, in test cricket. You know, for argument's sake, they could walk from the boundary or the pavilion to the middle in a county match and it would take them, I don't know, 30 seconds because they knew what how good they were, they knew what the opposition was, they knew what the surface they were playing on, they knew how they were going to play, and they got a confidence in their own ability to counteract whatever was thrown at them as a batter. And that same person might take two minutes to get from the pavilion to the uh, test middle because there were different things going through his head. And that's when you got the lack of mental strength. What about journeys? So you go to a game and, and yeah. then suddenly... Might have to go somewhere else. Yeah, regular. Well, I was driving between sixty and 70,000 miles a year. You know, what, what you tended to do, I'd make my mind, right, I need to, I need to talk to so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so. They are both, or all three, are playing in this game down at, at Hove. So I'd drive from Chesterfield to Hove. I get there in good time so I could talk to them prior to them going out practicing and whatever, just needed the conversation, and then watch the days play there, maybe all the day, sometimes part of the day, because I saw or I had the conversation I needed to do, generally with the all the day, and then see how or I see how the the second day was was looking because you know I needed to know who was batting and bowling. So I might so basically I never kind of planned out where I was going. I'd wait and see how the games were going. So many times I'd do start at Chesterfield where I lived, went to Hove, Hove to Chesterley Street. The following night I'd go from Chesterley Street down to Taunton and then Taunton back to Leeds again or something like that. So I was constantly on the road, but that's what the job necessitated. Did you enjoy it? I mean, was it something that gave you a lot of stress or did you actually find it quite fulfilling? Did you have sleepless nights? I mean, how were you sort of over the process? It was an honour. It was a privilege to do it. It was 
absolutely humbling to do it from a position you know, you, listen, you know what my, my background was a basic Chesterfield lad and you know, you've heard me speak and, uh, on the Huber factor and the self-deprecation but to be given that position or offered that position was humbling uh, and a great honour it wasn't a problem but it was a, a situation where you were very much because your, your viewpoint could have been the deciding factor involved in somebody else's international career okay so yeah you had to take that into consideration the decisions you make had to be consistent and honest and if you were making a consistent honest decision and it was detrimental to a certain person you had to go eye to eye with that person and explain why you were doing what you were doing so yes there were difficult conversations so it it gave you it gave you stress levels it gave you sleepless nights but that they were measured along with the success that we had. We had a lot of success. You used the word fulfilling, massively fulfilling. So you had to take each kind of uh, strength and weakness of, of, the, of the job uh, and try and stay as level as possible. Well, he's an interesting person to, to listen to, Jeff Miller, when he talks about cricket in general. I mean, he's a great after-dinner speaker. Yeah. Fascinating to hear his insight into being an England selector. The hours as well, the time involved, the long miles. meetings, the yeah. miles, yeah. 70,000 miles in a year, all those conversations, all that watching of cricket. He once said to me as well that he would come home from a day of watching county cricket and then he would need to catch up on the test screen because he'd need to watch the players that he'd picked or been involved in picking. So he'd then have to sit through a whole day's play, probably with a bit of fast forward on when the bowler was walking back to his mark, but he wanted to catch up and watch the players he'd, he'd picked as well. So he was a really dedicated servant and very successful, I think, as a selector. He made one or two mistakes on the way, as he would admit himself. I'm not going to actually tell you who he says were his mistakes, but he does admit to a, a few mistakes along the way, inevitably, as a selector, I think. But real real dedication over over 13 years of selecting the England side or helping to select the England side. Oh, he's a great accumulator of information, Jeff. He was someone who roved around commentary boxes and press boxes and probably dressing rooms and talked to umpires. He's such a sociable sort of guy. And I wonder sometimes whether you almost get bombarded with so much information it must be hard to yeah. you know to diffuse it all and actually work out what the straightforward answer is and who is the best player to go for there have always been counties who said well the selector doesn't come and watch us enough Glamorgan usually are the, are the one who accuse the selectors of that you can never satisfy everybody it's so difficult to to do a job and get around all the counties but I mean now it is possible to watch all the cricket, see all the wickets, see the guys making their 50s and 100s. But the point he makes, which is interesting, is that footage isn't good enough. Yeah. You need to be able to sort of see a person in his environment, sense the pitch, sense the intensity of the moment that he's batting in. Like, for instance, I'm saying with Pope facing Bresnan and see the kind of climate with Joe Root at mid-off, the England captain, kind of probably really watching that little duel to assess, assess himself what he thought of that player. And also talk to people, talk to coaches, talk to opponents and see what they think. It's not just enough to be able to watch the footage. OK, well, that's one aspect of selection and the way it's done, really, the way the selectors operate. After the break, we're going to hear from a man who basically, and we've heard from him before, Dan Weston. I know lots of people enjoyed hearing from him a few weeks ago. We're going to hear from Dan. He's going to select his team for the first test match based on his statistical algorithms, if that's the right phrase. Welcome back, and don't forget this 
podcast is in association with The Cricketer magazine, and you can get 20% off your subscription to The Cricketer if you go to thecricketer.com forward slash podcast, and there is a, a form there that you can fill in and get your 20% off The Cricketer magazine. Okay, then we hear from Jeff Miller in the first half, former England selector. Now we're going to hear from Dan Weston, who made a bold claim on our podcast a few weeks ago saying that he could select a better team than the selectors, certainly in in T20. I think that was his feeling. He was confident about selecting a better T20 team, possibly a one-day international team. Test team, not so sure. A lot more goes into it, as Jeff Miller indicated in in the first half of this podcast. Anyway, this is Dan's team for the first test, based on his stats. Cook, Stoneman, Rory Burns, Root, Bairstow, Stokes, Folks, keeping wicket, Wokes, Broad, Anderson and Porter. So not a huge number of changes from the side that we saw in the winter and the side that we saw in New Zealand, but changes nonetheless. And one big one is no David Milan, which I think is a big omission. Because he just he handled the test environment extremely well over the last twelve months. He he was a little bit slow against the West Indies last summer. Got sort of rather stuck in his sort of thirties and forties and played long innings for without a huge amount of productivity. But once he got into the Ashes, he looked really impressive. Anyway, that's Dan's team. No spinner. Now this is why he has selected this team. He explains how he came to it. The conditions would be the first, the first area that I would look at to start with. So obviously, you can't judge what the pitch is going to be, what it's going to look like in advance. But you can look at sort of historical data to suggest what the likely conditions are going to be, and also I guess obviously the logic as well, given the fact that that England are playing Pakistan at home in this particular test. Um, they're, not, they're not going to play a spinning pitch to play play to Pakistan's strengths. And if you look at the historical data um, from Test matches in May. If we look at the test matches in May this decade in England, uh, paces cost 30 runs per wicket and spins cost 39 runs per wicket. So there's quite a big bias between pace and spin in terms of the effectiveness in, in, in these May conditions in England. And also at Lords in May, there's an even bigger discrepancy. So this decade at Lords, um, pace has gone for 29 runs per wicket and spin's gone for almost 55. So with, with 86% of wickets going to paces at Lords in in May in 2000, uh, 2010 onwards, it, it's obviously going to be a, a seamer's wicket and spin's going to have very little effect. So, realistically, that brings into the question and necessity of, bring, of playing that, that sort of specialist spinner to start with. How are you going to choose the seamers that you're going to pick then? Well, I ran my algorithm on pretty much every player that's been rumoured to be either you know, rumoured for inclusion or obviously going to be included or, or has been in and around the squad in, in, in recent months. And what I did personally when I picked my best team was to look at sample size as well. So looking at an example between two players, Ben Code and Jamie Porter, Ben Code's actually got a slightly better expected average for test cricket based on my data but his sample size is a lot smaller, whereas obviously Jamie Porter's done it over three seasons now and, and has started this season pretty well as well. Porter's sample size was, has a lot more weight than, than Code's, for example, So, but obviously Code would be someone that you want to keep a, a close eye on. Um, looking at the other bowlers, um, 
side bottom at Warwickshire is on, but I don't think he qualifies yet, even though he's got an English passport. But he's in the sort of the code bracket as well with that small sample. Although I've gone through like a lot of his his lower league data, second eleven, Birmingham league and stuff, and, and all the data that he's got translates really well to future success. So he's definitely another one to keep an eye on. Um, and then obviously you've got Anderson who came out as the the the, the number one bowler in terms of the sample size and, and expected average. And then it's sort of much of a muchness after that. There's a lot of players in that sort of 27 to, to 32 expected bowling average at, at test cricket. So realistically, you're looking at, at very small marginal gains, whoever you pick in that bracket, sort of a, a dozen players, basically. Obviously, England's real issues over the last couple of years has been batsmen and mm-hmm. top order, openers, number three, etc. Mm-hmm. What would be your selection process well based on my numbers England have only got sort of three shoo-in world-class batsmen and I think they're the names that everyone would suggest and that's Root Bearstone Cook and, and all three of them have in my by my data expected test averages of over 45 so so that, that puts them in that sort of world-class bracket for sure and, and, and they're going to be the first three names in the team ship then you need to think about who is going to come in and and fill those sort of other three batsman spots. Do you, do you, how many all rounders do you want in the team? Do England want perhaps some more batting depth, given the fact that they're prone to collapses as well? And obviously, if you play Stokes at six, then that that allows that that extra second all rounder. Um, I guess England also wants some stability in the middle order, and they've been probably fairly accused of losing cheap wickets in the past. And actually, the the, the player who came out fourth best batsman was Rory Burns and he is obviously someone that sort of fits that he sort of knuckles down and, and maybe not the most flashy player but, but is, is, is quite stable and, and I would I would suggest that he, he merits a chance especially given the fact that he's been a consistent run scorer across a number of years now So you're talking him as an opener or as a number three? Uh, a three so the man in possession as an opener was obviously Stoneman and his Expected data is within one run of the likes of of, of Ben Folks, Northeast, uh, Burns, Stokes, Liam Livingston, Gubbins. They're all in that sort of thirty-seven to thirty-nine expected average bracket. And given the fact that he's the man in possession, I'm probably fine with sticking with Stoneman. Right, that's Dan Weston from Sports Advantage Analytics. What I think is interesting about Dan is that he doesn't just use stats from the county championship. He goes second eleven cricket and and cricket before players have played second eleven cricket, presumably because there are pointers out there of players who've gone through their teenage years or late teenage years who have produced a certain volume of runs or taken a certain number of wickets who go on to be top level players. That's the only thing I can think. Is you think, well, how is how is a club cricket particularly relevant to how you're going to produce? eventually in, in test match cricket. But a lot of thoughts there, and everyone out there will have their own idea about who, who should play. And I think the other aspect there with, with Dan is that the fact that with the batsman, it is, you know, it might well come down to judgment because there are so many batsmen who are, whose stats are quite similar in what Dan terms as predicted average. Yes, and, you know, again, watching the cricket at the Oval, I thought to myself, there is a really stolid, determined, rather crabby batsman who was prepared to bat a whole session and grind it out for Surrey, excellent player, Dean Elgar, South Africa. (laughs) So why is it that 
you know, we the, the South Africans seem to almost have a blueprint in these determined batsmen. Graham Smith being one, Jonathan Trott, if you sort of imagine that he originally learned his game in in South Africa. These guys who just don't give their wickets away and they really stick it out. And we don't produce many guys like that in England anymore. Keaton Jennings, of course, was originally South African and is making runs against this summer. You know, what what is it about the English game? I think it's because partly because of the sort of dominant nature of one-day cricket, firstly, and just this lopsided nature of the county season, that we have all these games early season when the batsmen struggle a bit, and then suddenly most of the other championship games are later in the season. It must be very hard for batsmen who are traditional-style players to get any rhythm going. Dan going for Rory Burns and for Jamie Porter. We saw Rory Burns play a couple of weeks ago. We went to the Oval to together and, and, and watched on a, a really nice day for batting and you, what your observation was actually looks a little bit like Graham Smith or Dean Elgar yeah yeah I, I, I didn't like his method but maybe that doesn't matter you know people some people didn't like Jeff Boycott's method but he was very effective so I, I, England do need somebody like that who is just going to grind out big scores and it's partly mental obviously there's a technical element to it as well Perhaps he's right with Burns. And, you know, you talked about the, the using the second eleven and the club data to interpret more about a player. You know, what he's looking for, Dan Weston, is an ability to transfer your skills up a level and, and be able to move higher in the game and not be affected. And Jamie Porter gets in as well. He's got a, a good record just, you know, just on those basic statistics of, of wickets taken an average, over 200 wickets at, at 23. Yeah, and... He's adapted very well to the first division. What you're looking for, again, is a bowler who might take his wickets in the second division at 18, 19, 20, but then he can still be very productive, have a low average in the first division. So he's not intimidated by better batsmen or possibly better pitches, and he's still producing those results. Uh, He's not uh, the kind of pace that people have said England need. But in English conditions, I don't think they do need a lot of pace. Against Pakistan, I'm sure Porter would do really well. Here's one final point to finish with as well. And, and this is something that Dan's very strong on. He was talking about Lords, the conditions at Lords. He is very much horses for courses. So you, you pick it test match by test match. Whereas Jeff Miller, as the England national selector, would look for continuity, wouldn't it? So often in the past, we remember this very clearly, player would get one or two test matches, especially a batsman, and would then be jettisoned. And, and that's really tough for a, for a batsman. Can you really pick a team just on horses for courses, test match by test match? Or have you got to think about that, that continuity that you know, some of the national selector has to think about in a way, creating sort of team spirit and confidence in a player? Yeah, I think you do need continuity because test cricket is, yes, an individual game, batsman v bowler, but it is a team game as well. And you need to be able to trust players and know exactly what they're abilities are in different situations so that you can trust them to to perform in those roles if you keep bringing in new people all the time it's destabilizing look at again i'll go back to mark ramprakash who was dropped something like seven times in his test career maybe more graham hick was another one and they they definitely had ability they they perhaps had lacked sometimes the mental strength but they could have acquired that with a bit more faith from the selectors but because there was no actual consistency they were nervous kind of generally apprehensive and didn't perform at their best if you don't know you're going to be playing in the next game I think that puts a lot of players under pressure 
Well, some people listening to this podcast won't know England's team for the Test match because it's being announced on Tuesday. Some people listening to this will already know it because it's already uh, been announced. So, as I said earlier, you'll have your views about who should and should not be playing for England. Someone's got to select the t- select the team and then come up with an, a 13 or a 12 or, or an 11. And I think we all wish uh, Ed, because we know him well as well, we all wish him the best in his new role. And I mean, it is a bit of a thankless task because whoever you pick, you're going to be criticised. Unless, of course, they all go out there and score hundreds and, and, and take five wickets. And is he going to appear at, at county grounds? Because so far, he's been quite invisible, almost like the sort of Scarlet Pimpernel. Nobody knows where he is. Well, he's had his Wurzel Gummidge head on, hasn't he? As Jeff Miller <laughs> said, incognito. I reckon he's watching lots of screens in his house in Kent, actually, just analysing all the players, making lots of phone calls. I guess he will be more in- conspicuous as the season goes on. And I would like to wish him the best as well and of course England too. So next week we'll look ahead to the first test against Pakistan at Laws which of course starts on May the 24th. In the meantime thanks very much for listening. And don't forget all England's home tests, ODIs and T20s are available live only on Sky Sports Cricket. Go to skysports.com forward slash cricket for more details. Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.